0: The guest of this episode of Weekend Birda lives in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, the land of the Darug and Gundagara people. For countless generations, Aboriginal peoples have shared the Blue Mountains as their seasonal home, hunting ground and ceremonial place. They have a continuous and deep connection to their country and I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. I would also like to recognise the strength, capacity and resilience of past and present Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in the Blue Mountains region. Welcome to weekend Birder I'm Kirsty Costa. If you have never met Carol Probitz before you are in for a treat. Carol has introduced hundreds of people to bird watching, especially in the Blue Mountains, Kapete Valley and throughout New South Wales.
1: It would have been before I was about seven or eight. I just, for some reason, I was just fascinated by the birds around me and was not because of any anyone I knew and I had no family members that were into birds. It was just something that I was just fascinated by and, and I'd, I'd hear the, these bird calls around me and wonder, wonder what they were. Eventually somebody gave me a copy of um, the book, What Bird Is That?, which at the time it was the only field guide available. There are much more effective field guides available now but at the time you know it's a very interesting historical book that one because it was so important back in those days. I'd look through the book and look at all these hundreds and hundreds of birds and think wow I wonder I wonder if it would be possible to see some of these you know Um, and I, I didn't have binoculars or anything I was too young but you know it was a great thrill whenever I could actually identify something that I saw but you know as you get into your teenage years that you know it seems like an uncool thing to do and so I kind of lost interest for well didn't lose interest but I kind of just got forgotten about for a while and then when I was 23 years old I moved up the mountains I got into rock climbing and I moved up the mountains because of that for the first time ever I met other bird watchers and it really rekindled the interest and being out in the bush so much you know my interest was rekindled and and that's when I really got into it big time and that that was in um, in the early 1980s you know I joined various bird watching clubs and um, started keeping proper records and started contributing to um, what is now called citizen science you know we we sort of think of citizen science as being this new thing but in fact it's been around for for many many years it just wasn't called Citizen Science back then and it wasn't done via an app or a smartphone, it was, it was done by writing things on sheets of paper and then sending them in the mail.
0: <laughs> Carol has spent decades exploring the Blue Mountains where more than 250 different species of birds have been recorded. Its rainforest gullies, rocky heathlands and eucalypt woodlands are home to some of Australia's most endangered birds. One of the places that Carol loves to visit is what she calls Honeyeater Hill.
1: It's one of our honey eater counting sites and it's not marked on any map as honey eater hill. It's a name we gave it. It's near Katoomba and it's on a ridge covered in heathland. You know, being an exposed heathland site, it doesn't have the best bird diversity, you know, for the best bird diversity in the mountains, you really need to get into the rich wet forests, the forests that are dominated by blue gums and monkey gums or into the western valleys with the drier woodland you know for really good bird diversity but these this beautiful heathland hill when it's a good day you know you have the chance of really really special bird experience out there and it is one of the best places to actually watch the honey eater migration which you know on a good day that is something that's really spectacular and it's not just honey eaters that are coming through but all sorts of migratory species and you just never know what's going to turn up next you just watch all these birds whizzing past you in waves and you know you could be seeing not just various honey eaters but partilotes and all sorts of other migratory species you know swallows wood swallows i've even seen a flock of uh, swift parrots fly past which are critically endangered species now but on top of that you have the most spectacular views you don't want to go out there on a windy day or or a freezing cold day but it's if it's a nice day You just sit there and bask in the views. You can see pretty much 360 degrees and and it's just so unexpected what you could see there. When the migration is happening, there are peregrine falcons live there and they patrol the area to to hunt any of the the slower little migrating birds. And if you're really lucky, you can see the peregrines hunting and catching the little honey eaters or some of the other migrants.
0: There are more than 180 species of honey eaters living in Australasia. With 83 species found in Australia, they make up our largest family of birds.
1: Wherever you are in Australia, there's Going to be some sort of honey eater around, you know, from the alpine areas to to the driest deserts, to the coasts, to the tropics. Everywhere in Australia, there's there are some sorts of honey eaters, and they're so variable. They they range from the tiny, tiny scarlet honey eater, which is about the size of a gum leaf, up to wattlebirds, which the largest wattlebird, the yellow wattlebird, which is forty five centimeters long. So you know, it's pretty big size range. They tend to be, you know, dominant, pugnacious birds in the environment. They're always squabbling with each other, chasing each other away from the best flowers. They're very agile, fast, you know, fast flying and able to hang upside down and very acrobatic birds. But the word honey eater is actually a bit of a misnomer. They don't eat honey. They, They do eat nectar, nectar from flowers, but to various degrees. So some of them relied very largely on nectar and others less so all honeyeaters also feed on insects in addition to nectar and things like insect secretions. So that's things like lerp's and honeydew and fruit at times. So you know they have actually quite a wide variety of food. But you've got birds like the little um, eastern spinebill and the scarlet honeyeater and the, the iconic critically endangered regent honeyeater, which are birds that rely very much on nectar. So that nectar is a, a major part of their diet, and then ranging to birds honey eaters like brown headed honey eater for example which which is you know insects are a much more a much bigger part of their diet so yeah a really really variable group but very important ecologically because they're major pollinators of uh, a lot of our flowers in Australia so you know some of the features that distinguish honey eaters they have a brush like tongue so if you imagine a little paintbrush that they can um, move in and out of their bill so it can extend beyond the tip of the bill which they use that to gather up the nectar out of the flowers they all have a a slightly down curved bill it might be long and thin or it might be shorter and thicker but it's always slightly down curved and another thing about them is that when you're identifying them it's often the features on the face that you use to identify and you mentioned that quite a few of them have some sort of yellow stripes so that's a good example of you know those face markings that
0: can help to to identify them.
1: So yeah, if you see a honey eater, you can see the face.
0: It's a big help usually. A way to identify if a bird belongs to the honey eater family is to look at its scientific name. Western science organises animals by classification, which is based on where they live, their anatomy, their behaviour, and other characteristics. Western science tends to use Latin or Greek to give every animal a unique scientific name so that people around the world can communicate about an animal no matter what they might call it in their local language. The scientific name of each bird is designed to tell you something about the bird's relationship with other birds. So, when you look up different honey eaters in your favourite field guide, in an app you're using, or online, you will find that every species starts with Meliphagidae. Once you know this, you will discover that Maizomillas, Spinebills, Frybirds, Chats, Miners and Wattlebirds also belong to the family of honeyeaters. And you will also discover that quite a few of these species migrate.
1: It's a phenomenon actually that's called the honey eater migration, and it's not just the honey eaters that migrate, but it's predominantly the honey eaters. And it just so happens that the Blue Mountains is, is one of the best places in Australia to see that. Not long after I first moved to the mountains, so I, I started noticing in certain places in autumn you just had this constant stream of particularly um, yellow faced honey eaters just coming through in hundreds and hundreds. So, you know, on a good day it's just totally overwhelming that the number of birds that fly through it's actually one of the most spectacular migration events in australia and yet hardly anybody knows about it you know i mean people talk about the whale migration and you know the the big migrations in other continents but you know we have our own spectacular thing here that the honey eater migration but the problem is it's very hard to predict you know you just have to be in the right place at the right time to see it. About 12 years ago, we our club decided that we would embark on a, a program to monitor the numbers of the migrating honey eaters at some of the, uh, the bottlenecks where they come through. As these birds fly north, um, sort of from their breeding areas to their winter feeding areas, they're generally going in a northward direction. And as they come to the Blue Mountains, they come up against these big vertical cliffs. So they're kind of funneled into the gullies. So all the these masses of birds they all get funneled in like a bottleneck into a narrow pass where they come up the cliffs so if you stand in certain places at the tops of these gullies you just get phenomenal numbers coming through you know it can be it can be absolutely breathtaking so we embarked on a rather rather ambitious project of counting these birds and monitoring them so uh, we've been doing that for over 10 years now and we have over 50 volunteers that take part it's all Blue Mountains residents that take part because of the way we do it and because there's so much variation from day to day we really need to count on lots and lots of days it's not something you can just come up and do on one day. It's So what we do is we have teams of people counting on a certain day every week for the six or seven weeks of the autumn migration. They do a 20-minute count on whatever day is their scheduled day. And if it's raining and wet, still have to count and you're likely to get no birds at all. You know, if it's if it's overcast, you might get a few, but if it's a really good day, you can get just thousands and thousands of birds. So, you know, it's worth persevering all those weeks just to for the chance of having a good day. You know, some of our, our biggest counts have been over 4,000 birds counted in 20 minutes. So that's just – it's if you can imagine, like, standing inside a big motorway and counting the cars – going past it's a bit like that they're just different birds all the time going past they're all going past in the same direction it's quite exciting really to count them so yeah we've we've counted them for for over 10 years now and we've done one thousand four hundred counts on 470 separate days the idea is to monitor for any long-term changes in um, in their numbers. So because there's so much variation from day to day and from year to year, it has to be a long-term project because only by doing this for a long time, for many years, is the only way to really be alerted to any declines, any changes in their numbers, or to just see, to try and work out any trends, try and work out what actually influences the numbers.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm curious to know how Carol and her team count hundreds of honey eaters all at once.
1: What we do is, you know, if they're coming through in small numbers, it's not too much of a problem. You just count, count them as they go past. But once the numbers start to get bigger and they, they're coming through faster, then we teach people to get a mental image of five birds. You count in fives, five, 10, 15, 20 and so on and then if they get even more then change to 5 10 and then you, you sort of get a mental image of that 10 birds and so you're counting 10 20 30 40 and so on on a really really big day sometimes you find yourself going 50 100 200 300 like that they're just coming through so fast we don't pretend that it's an accurate count it's the best estimation that's possible really and you know we've tried out comparing different people's results on the same at the same time and it's surprisingly close actually and the good thing is that you don't need to be able to identify them you're just counting so as long as you
0: can see and as long as you can count it's um some people can can get involved with. Yellow-faced honey eaters and white nape honey eaters are the most common honey eaters that Carol and her team see during their counts. So where do they migrate and why do they migrate?
1: So they're migrating from their breeding areas. So this is autumn, remember. So they're finished breeding. So they, they breed all along the, the tablelands and coastal areas of southeastern Australia. So they're coming from their various breeding areas and they're going towards areas where there's good winter nectar okay so they're generally moving north and the winter feeding areas is not necessarily the same each year It depends where the best nectar is and where the best conditions are so it might be the banksia heathlands on the coast it might be the banksia heathlands in the mountains or it might be the box ironbark woodlands inland um, sort of west of the mountains. So, you know, some years are more inland years and some years are more coastal years. Also, the, the swamp mahogany woodlands on the coast and the, the spotted gum is another one that attracts a lot of honey eaters in the, in the winter. Yeah, just these various areas according to what's flowering best that year. The other thing to remember is that they're partial migrants. A lot of Australian birds are partial migrants. And what that means is that some of the population migrate and some of them don't. Yeah, it's just a certain proportion migrate and that proportion may change from one year to another, which may explain why some years we get a really big migration
0: and some years, like this year, very small migration. Because the Blue Mountains is a migration bottleneck for yellow-faced honey eaters, it is known as a key biodiversity area. Key biodiversity areas are identified as being the most important places in the world for species and their habitats. Carol and her team are part of an official program that identifies, maps, monitors and helps to conserve key biodiversity areas. The data that they are collecting will soon be available to BirdLife Australia and any researchers who wish to analyse it. The yellow-faced honey eater is widespread in eastern and southeastern mainland. Australia, from northern Queensland to eastern South Australia. Here's how to identify it when you are out birdwatching.
1: Size-wise, most people are familiar with sparrows. It's comparable in size to a sparrow, but it's slightly longer, but that's because honey eaters have longish tails. So the tail is a bit longer than a sparrow's tail and the bill is a bit longer than a sparrow's bill. It actually weighs less. Than a sparrow. So to look at it at a glance, you'd think, oh, it's roughly sparrow-sized, but it's got a smaller body and a longer tail. Apart from that, it's a fairly plain looking bird, just sort of grey-brown, but it with the lovely yellow stripe through the face. The amazing thing about them is just that the way they just move through in these massive waves. So many of them, and they have a little contact call, which It's such a cheerful little call. As they fly, they all kind of go chip, 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 chip. So when you hear hundreds of them doing that, it, becomes such a characteristic sound of, of autumn when they're moving through. Just every time I hear that migration call of the yellow-faced honey eaters, it's like, ah, oh, autumn's here, or to a lesser extent, spring. They're starting to, you know, they start to come back in spring. Yeah, and then when they land, their call is very brisk. Chick up, chick up, chick up, chick up. So it's, it's a
0: really cheerful, brisk little call. kind of lifts your spirits every time you hear it. Carol recommends a good field guide and a good pair of binoculars as basic tools for watching honey eaters and other Australian birds.
1: The beauty of bird watching is that you really need a, a minimum number of tools. There's uh, very few things you really need. And, I mean, these days a lot of people, camera is their first tool and that's fine, but I'm going to put forward a slightly different viewpoint here. I would suggest that the number one basic tool, that you need is a good field guide and by that i mean a book a paper book and there are several good ones available but you know a field guide te- shows you all of the possibilities. If if you're searching for something online, you might come across something that looks similar and it's easy to jump to the conclusion that that's what you've seen. But unless you've got a book with all the possibilities laid out next to each other, you can actually compare them all and, and work out which one it really is. So three or four really good field guides available at the moment. But the, the second tool, of course, is binoculars. And a lot of people these days go without binoculars because they have you know really good cameras or cameras with really powerful telephoto lens you know and it's great I mean I think it's fantastic that so many people getting into bird photography it means that so many more people get interested in birds because it's such an addictive thing taking photos of birds and It seems so easy to take a photo of a bird and then work out what it is. I would suggest that everybody, even the keenest photographers, sometimes leave your camera behind. So don't take it with you all the time because it's really good exercise and really good experience to to watch birds without trying to photograph them. Just watch them. And if you've got binoculars then all the better watch the way they move try and train yourself to look for the important features so that you can at least get an idea of what you're looking at in the field rather than having to rely on using a photo I mean one of the things with using a photo to identify birds is that you know you might have captured that bird at a weird moment you know sometimes birds are in funny positions or their feathers are fluffed up the wrong way or they're facing the wrong way or they're in shadow and and it kind of gives slightly wrong impression of what the bird looks like. I've actually seen photos that are quite deceptive. They look like one thing when they're actually another thing because nothing is as good as actually seeing the movement that the bird in all its moments not just one moment and the way it moves and and just seeing all the bits that you can possibly piece together of of the different angles that you see the bird at.
0: Carol had a 25 year career as a birding guide and continues to be involved in the bird watching community in semi-retirement. She has a wealth of advice to share.
1: I'll illustrate this by something that I used to do sometimes when I taught beginner birdwatching classes. And I had a rubber lizard. <laughs> the only reason I had a rubber lizard was that I couldn't, I didn't have a rubber bird. But it's same principle. I had, so I had this rubber lizard in a box, and so the class is there, and I would get it out of the box in front of the group and I'd say quickly tell me what color is its belly and straight away people would say green belly's green and then I would show them in good light the belly was actually light gray the box that it came out of had a green lid and I was holding it above the green lid and what they were seeing was the reflection of the green lid onto the belly and it made it look like it had a green belly. So that just illustrates how colour can trick our eyes, you know. What we see is not necessarily the actual colour of something and it can vary by the shadows, it can vary by the, the light conditions. If you're looking in a book or on a photo on, online, it, it can depend on the, the light conditions that it was photographed under. It can also depend on the colour balance of the photo. So often I hear people say, oh, they try and describe a to to me and they say oh what was it it was kind of brown it was sort of a light brown color and I suggest something and show them a picture and say oh no it was a it was slightly different color to that really if you remember the how deceptive color can be my advice is not to get too caught up in in the exact color of something but instead what you should be looking for is is field marks which are distinct markings that most birds have so it might be an eye stripe a lot of birds have a pale eyebrow it might be uh, striations on the throat or on the breast which are striations are little vertical stripes might be barring which refers to horizontal stripes which might be on the breast or on the tail might have a marking in the wing little flash in the wing or some spots on the wing something like that any distinct markings can be a great um, field mark for identification and of course along with things like the shape of the bird and the bill of course which is very important the tail length and the habitat and the behavior all these things together help to identify but first and foremost really try and see if there's any particular markings the bird has. One example of this, there, there are two very beautiful birds which are sadly both declining, the flame robin and the scarlet robin. The books will tell you that the flame robin has a, an orangey red breast and the scarlet robin has a sort of bright scarlet red breast which is usually true, however I've I've seen scarlet robins that look surprisingly orange and flame robins that look surprisingly scarlet so the other way to tell them apart which is much more reliable is is that the scarlet robin has a black throat. The red doesn't go up all the way to the bill. It's cut off abruptly with a black throat, whereas the flame robin, the red goes all the way up to almost the beak, and it also has a small white spot on the forehead, whereas the scarlet robin has a much bigger white spot on the forehead. So those are the things that will really tell you more definitively which one you're looking at rather than, you know, is it is it a bit orangey or is it more of a scarlet
0: colour? That's such good advice. I am often mesmerised by the colour of a bird and don't properly look at its markings. Thank you, Carol. Your passion and commitment to conservation and education is really inspiring. Listeners, check out the notes for this episode or visit weekendbirder.com if you'd like to find out more about honey eaters. And if you live in the Blue Mountains, you might even like to get involved in the migration count. I've been so overwhelmed by the support for this little podcast. Thank you so much for your social media comments, your emails, and for leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot. Stay tuned for more birdwatching stories and advice on Weekend Birder.